Be in Luke chapter 10 this morning. We're going to be in the first 16 verses there. Really, it's 1 through 24 feels like its own section, but we better break that up for the sake of the kids that sit here in church with us every Sunday. William Carey is sometimes called the, the father of modern missions. He spent 40 years in India proclaiming and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. But he became known as the father of modern missions not because of his decades of service. It was really his insistence, uh, contrary to those around him, his insistence that God uses the means of missionaries to go proclaim the gospel to draw sinners to Christ. When he first began to promote this idea that, hey, you know, we might want to send some missionaries, I may even go as a missionary... He was told in one meeting, meeting this by an older pastor, Young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. So, essentially, don't worry about going, William. If God wants to save the sinner, he won't use missionaries to do it. Well, that, that attitude seems so foreign to us. But as one article put it, that such an attitude is inconceivable today is largely due to the subsequent efforts of that young man, William Carey. You know, that, that preacher that stood up in that meeting, he used enthusiasm as, as an insult. You're an enthusiast. You're getting ahead of yourself. However, Carey was enthusiastic in, in a good sense, enthusiastic to give his life to go preach the gospel in India. You see, he believed. He believed like the man that told him to sit down in the sovereignty of God in all things, including the conversion of those who hadn't heard the gospel in, in India. But he also believed, and I would say biblically, that God uses means to accomplish his will. So we feel this, this tension in our text this morning as well. Jesus sending out the messengers to do the work of harvesting while calling on them to plead to the Lord of the harvest, the sovereign God, to send out more laborers into the harvest. Go and proclaim the kingdom of God, Jesus says to the 72 here. So as we, as we look into our text, the first thing that really pops off the page at us is the urgency of this mission there in the first four verses. As often Luke does, he, he, he gives us a verse or two of introductory setting when he kind of changes to a new narrative. And he does it here, but he only gives us a couple words. After this, that's the setting. After what? Well, in Luke, it's after the rejection by the Samaritans and the subsequent description from Jesus of what it truly looks like to follow him. So Jesus destroyed some preconceived notions 
about the ease of following Jesus. Oh, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. Well, don't you know that the, the foxes have dens and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He, he destroyed these preconceived notions. Well, Lord, let me go first and do this. No, this nothing can come before our priority to Christ. It's after this that he then calls and appoints the 72 to be sent out. Now, if you are reading a different translation that says 70, I'd like to maybe connect with you afterwards and explain why you have two different numbers there, but I'm not sure it's worth our time this morning to spend. I had like a whole page on this, and I had to cut it. All right, that's what I'm saying. So for those of you who are interested, I'm sorry. For those of you who don't care, you're welcome. Well, we're going to go with 72. I think, that's, I think that's right for different reasons, and we can talk about it later. But these 72 others, they seem to be a distinct and a separate group from the 12 disciples, the disciples who were called and commissioned by Jesus earlier in chapter 9. And these followers, these, these messengers, are going to be sent out to go ahead of Jesus, like Many John the Baptist are going to go before Jesus and they're going to proclaim the kingdom in all the cities that he is going to go to. They're sent into the towns that Jesus will soon be visiting. And they're sent out, not as 72 to this town and this town. They're sent out two by two. They're sent out in pairs. Not only was this a good way to travel in Israel so you don't end up like the man later on in the parable of the Good Samaritan who ends up beaten and robbed and left for dead. Well, a good way not to end up like that guy is to travel in pairs. But there's likely another reason that Jesus sends them out in twos. It's that kind of an allusion to the Old Testament that for a criminal charge to be established, it needed to be based on two witnesses. You couldn't establish a charge against someone based on one witness. So these, these disciples, not, not the twelve, but these followers of Christ, are going to be sent out as double witnesses to the arrival of the kingdom of Christ. So look there in verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them in verse 2, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So Jesus explains there in verse 2 that the harvest is plentiful, but there are a lack of workers the idea of harvest indicates that, that this is a, a time of opportunity to preach Christ for these messengers to be sent out to proclaim the kingdom. And the only way to escape the coming judgment is to receive Christ who has come as king and ruler and Messiah and Savior. It's time for the harvest and the harvest is plentiful. Now this is a, a, a word of encouragement in the book of Luke where we've seen many different instances of rejection of Christ, rejection of Christ, rejection of Christ. And here comes this word of hope. The harvest is plentiful. 
despite the rejection of Christ, there are many whom God has chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world in these cities where, where these messengers will go and preach to hear the message and to respond positively to the message. In fact, there's a great example of this in, in, after the death and resurrection of Jesus in Acts 18 with Paul in Corinth. The Lord says this to Paul, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. Stay there and preach, Paul, because the harvest is plentiful. Or in the words of Acts 18, there are many here who are my people. Again, people chosen by God, elect according to God's free grace. But they will come through the means of Paul being in Corinth and proclaiming and preaching the gospel of Christ. Paul is a laborer who is being used by God to bring in the harvest. Notice who we pray to, the Lord of the harvest. Pray then to the Lord of the harvest. God is sovereign over this. He sends, he calls, he saves. But again, as William Carey argued, and we've been arguing this morning, God uses means to accomplish his will. So Jesus implores his disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he may send more laborers into the harvest. So you, so, so you might be wondering, what is it? Is God the Lord of the harvest? Is he sovereign over salvation? Does he have people in every city? Or should we be praying for more laborers? And that's a false dichotomy. The answer is yes. Yes, God is sovereign over all of it, including the means of prayer. And responding and answering prayer for more labors into the harvest to accomplish his will of bringing sinners to himself. God has ordained that the prayers of his saints are the means by which he calls and sends laborers into the harvest. So following the resurrection then, Jesus would commission the apostles to go and to preach the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And as the church, we continue in this mission. So, so I'm, making, I'm trying to make this connection. I, I want to be careful not to say like, oh, we are the 72. It, it's not, Jesus sends out the apostles and we continue in the task of this mission of evangelism. And as long as the task continues... I think that the imperative there falls also to the church that we pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he would send out more laborers, send out more missionaries, because the harvest is plentiful. Look at the danger, though, they face in, in verse 3. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. The mission of these Messengers involves risk. They're being sent out as lambs amidst the wolves. This is a warning about the opposition that they will face. Wolves are those who oppose God and oppose God's word. They're oftentimes false teachers 
who will revert even to the means of persecution to oppose God and his message going forth. So the, these messengers are going out as lambs amidst this observation or um, opposition. I just like combine two words. That's all right. They would need to remember Jesus' instruction in Luke chapter 6, verse 22, those beatitudes that he gave there. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Blessed are you when you're hated and reviled and spurned on account of Christ. Not because you're rude and mean to everybody, and then say, oh, I'm persecuted. No, because of Christ, faithfulness to Christ. So as lambs in the midst of wolves, they would need to depend on the Lord as their shepherd to protect them and provide for them and to, to allude to Psalm 23, to spread a table for them in the midst of their enemies. You know, there won't be their many resources that they get to rely on in the face of Opposition. In fact, they're, they're told to carry, to pack lightly in verse 4. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. This reminds us of, again, Jesus' instruction to the twelve when he commissioned them in, or in the beginning of chapter 9. The idea is to travel light, to take a carry-on and not two 50-pound bags. Press on. Don't, don't take extra supplies. In fact, the message is so urgent. The mission is so urgent. You don't even stop to talk to somebody on the side of the road. You don't greet them. It's not that you're rude. It's that you've got a mission to accomplish that, that Christ has sent you to. You know, it's, not, it's not being a, a, a jerk here. It's the urgency of the mes- message and the mission. You know, we've all been in moments where we're late for something and you see somebody that you know there and you're like, I don't have time. You know, you're trying to listen, you're trying to be a good friend, you don't have time. It's, it's this urgency. For an Old Testament example, you think of Elisha sending Gehazi to the Shunammite's son who's died. Don't just go, don't, don't stop and greet anybody on the side of the road. You can read about it there in 2 Kings 4. This this proclamation of the kingdom is so necessary and so important that Jesus forbids them from stopping and chatting up their their acquaintances on the side of the road. And again, as, as the church engages in the mission to make disciples of every nation, we too must be reminded of the urgency of the task. Again, unlike the guy who attacked William Carrie, we don't want to be lulled to sleep by, by our understanding of sovereignty. Yes, we affirm that sovereignty, but nowhere in the Bible does it assume that means we sit on the couch and eat Doritos and watch March Madness. I'm just throwing myself under the bus. We don't say, well, well, God is sovereign, so who cares if we send more missionaries? Who cares if we support those who are proclaiming the gospel? Who cares if we share the gospel here in Custer? That's not, that's not how we handle our doctrine. We take the word of God as a whole. 
Or worse, we must not be lulled to sleep by the desires and the comforts and the cares of this world. We get so distracted by materialism that we lose sight of the urgency of the task to spread the gospel to the nations and to proclaim Christ even here in our city. There are still billions of people who don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they have no hope. We'll see that in a moment. They have no hope outside of Christ. No hope outside of hearing the message of Christ. May we, even as a church here in Custer, not lose sight of the urgency of the task of proclamation. So we continue then in Jesus' instruction here. He begins to address kind of what they are to say and how they are to respond then to both acceptance and how they are to respond to rejection. So we have the message of the mission there, beginning in verse 5. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. So the announcement is they go into a new city, two by two, two messengers walk in, they are welcomed into a home, and they make this announcement of peace. And I think this is more than just a, a greeting as we see how Jesus defines what happens when you make this greeting. It, what, what's happening in the text, it feels like, okay, peace is leaving them, it's resting on them, it's coming back. What's, what's going on here? Really, it's that the messengers are Christ's representatives as they announce this offer of God's peace. The offer goes out, and it's either received or it's rejected by those who say, hey, come into my house. Well, here's this offer of peace. Some recognize the offer, and they, they turn, and they receive this offer of the kingdom. They are sons of peace at that point. Peace is something more than just a, a, a feeling of tranquility. It's to be in right standing before God. It is to have peace with Him where before there was hostility against God because of our sin. So the person who is responsive to this, this blessing of peace is a son of peace, the text says. That is a person who has received this message. A person who is characterized by peace, peace with God. As Jesus sends out his ambassadors, to welcome the ambassador is to welcome the message with which they come. To welcome the messenger is to welcome the message. So if they are welcomed into a home or a town, it was because the message of peace was welcomed. Therefore, the peace would rest upon those, it would stay upon those who receive the blessing of peace. But Jesus says if this, this offer is refused and the messengers and their message are rejected, then there is no benefit of, of peace there. There is no benefit of peace with God. It has been re refused. And so in that sense, the peace returns to the messenger. It doesn't rest on the person in that home. So if they are accepted into a home then, in verse 7, Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Same is true for a, a town there in verse 8. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. 
So if you're received into a home and they receive not only the messenger but the message, then, then remain in that home. Don't be bouncing around from home to home in this city. We, we, we saw a similar instruction back through the 12 in chapter 9. What Jesus seems to be prohibiting in both cases is bouncing around from house to house, being perceived as someone who is using the authority that has been given to them by Christ to preach and to heal as a means of serving themselves. You know, so-and-so has a better uh, setup in their guest room. I think I'll go over there. They're, they're, they're forbidden by Christ to do that. They're prohibited from angling for their own gain and for their own good. They are to be satisfied with what is provided there. That doesn't mean, though, that they go without support and they go without provisions. They must not be money-hungry, money-motivated, they must not be manipulative in order to improve their own uh, status, their own experience, but they are to eat and to drink what they are provided because, the text says, the laborer is worthy of his wages. So eat what is provided because the laborer is worthy of his wages. Now, we said earlier that as lambs in the midst of wolves, they were going to be dependent on the provision and the protection of the Lord. Well, what's one of the means that God uses here to provide for these messengers that go out? Well, one of the ways that God accomplishes this is through sons of peace, households that have received this message of the coming of Christ. The king has arrived. In other words, their support, their provisions comes from those who have received this message and are at peace with God. It comes through the people of God. So again, we're trying to be careful, I think, to draw appropriate applications uh, here without making too big a, a leaps between us and these 72 that were sent out. They served a, a, a very unique function during the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. But there is overlap here between their task and the task of the church. So I think an appropriate application from the text is that God uses his people, those who are sons of peace, to support his mission, his propagation of the gospel in all the world. How does it happen? It comes through the support and the provision of God's people. So you won't see us running fundraisers, selling Christmas trees at Christmas time, and I'm not trying to make fun here, but we don't go door to door and try to solicit other people to give us money. You know, we'll leave that to the kids in the school system to try to get us to buy their chocolate candy bars. We simply work hard. We go to work and we give sacrificially so that God's mission can be supported by God's people. That is the primary way that God has chosen to support this mission of people spreading the gospel to the world. One more quick application as it pertains to missions. The laborer is deserving of his wages. So when Savannah comes here or when Jake and Wendy come here, or when Alan and Mary Beth George are in town, 
we understand that it is a privilege for us to be behind them. You know, I have missionary friends who have gone to churches and they get called moochinaries. You're a mooch. You're mooching off the church. Listen, we don't, we don't talk that way because we understand it's a privilege to be a part of God's program that he has ordained to spread his gospel to the nations. We gladly work hard. We gladly give of our money because we understand the urgency of the task and the joy of partnering with those who go into all the world and proclaim Christ. So we're talking about the the message of the mission here. The ministry of the 72 involved then both healing and the proclamation of the kingdom. That's what Jesus says in verse 9. He's telling them, this is what you do. If you're welcomed into this town, here's what you do. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. So they've been given authority, much like the 12. They've been given authority from Christ. This is a derived authority. We've seen in the book of Luke that Christ is the one who has authority over sickness, over disease, over angels, over death, and even over sin. So they've been given a derived authority to go, and they are able then to exercise this authority in a demonstration of the power of the kingdom's arrival. It's healing and it's proclamation of the kingdom. You know, we said back in chapter 9 that healing and proclamation of the kingdom would go hand in hand. It was evidence to the people of Israel that the kingdom had come into their presence. It's an announcement in itself that look here in the presence of Christ, the coming of Christ into this world. Sin flees and all of the the things that accompany sin like death and, and disease, they flee. They cannot coexist in Christ's kingdom with Christ's reign. Disease and death flee at the arrival of Christ. So this kingdom, this long-awaited rule of the Messiah has come upon them. It's, it's it come near in the sense that it is, it is upon you. The idea of urgency returns again. It's, it's at hand. The time is now to respond to the king. Now the kingdom has come upon these cities, upon these households. But that is not to say that this is the full manifestation of the kingdom here. It is, it is a, a taste of the kingdom. Even following the death and resurrection and ascension, following the day of Pentecost, the apostles who are preaching includes uh, appeals to Israel to turn back to the Lord so that, in Acts 3.20, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. We await the return of Christ, but that doesn't mean that in, the, in a real sense the kingdom is at hand for these cities and for these people. We await a time of the restoration of all things under the sovereign rule of Christ in his kingdom. But here in Luke 10, the kingdom is in their midst. It has come upon them. They are seeing the exercise of God's power and authority. 
and it's demonstrated in sickness fleeing in these healings. It is experienced in the reception of Christ as the, as the kingdom is proclaimed. Notice then, though, the contrast in verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of, of God has come near. So there's that strong contrast. Here's what you do when you enter a house or you enter a town and they receive you. But if they don't receive you, in verse 10, here's what you do. Here's what you do when you are rejected. So Jesus' implication is there will be some that, that receive this message. There will be some that reject this message. And we see this even today, that the message concerning Christ, it, it divides. And when a town did not receive the message of peace with God, they were, they were, the messengers here were to go into a public street and they were to dust themselves off as a pronouncement of a, really a public warning. You can see it there in verse 11. Dust off their feet. This was a common act for Jewish people. You know, there's a lot of animosity and strife between Jew and Gentile. If a, if a Jewish person walked through Gentile territory, when they got back to Israel, they would dust themselves off to get rid of all the Gentile particles, so to speak. The uncleanness of the Gentiles. So this was a symbolic act demonstrating to these cities and these people who reject the message of the kingdom that they are like Gentiles who are, not, uh, who are separated from the promises and the blessing of God. It was a warning then of impending judgment, an announcement that you have rejected Christ and we will be taking this message to another city. It's almost like in... The Old Testament, when the prophet of the Lord leaves, it's an act of judgment. When the messenger of the Lord leaves a city, it's a warning that unless you repent, judgment will fall. Look at Christ's words in verse 12. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. So I think verse 12 serves as sort of a transition here. So let's wrap it up in this next section in verses 13 through 15. Point three this morning, the rejection of the mission. We read verse 12. Look there in verse 13. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to the heavens? You shall be brought down to Hades. So this evidence that Christ has come into the world, that he has power and authority over sickness and angels and death and sin is so overwhelming that to reject the evidence incurs a stricter judgment for uh, these cities that Jesus is going to and these cities in which he pronounces woes. They will be judged more harshly, Jesus says in verse 12, than Sodom. 
The cities that these pairs go into and they're rejected and they're kicked out of town and they have to dust off their feet. They will be judged more strictly than Sodom. Notice the tense there in verse 12. It will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. What town? That town that rejects Christ. This is looking forward to a future judgment. The day of judgment described in Revelation chapter 20 where Hades gives up its dead and everyone is judged according to what they had done. And the ungodly and the wicked are cast into eternal fire. Of course, we understand why Jesus would choose Sodom and say your judgment on that day, that day where you are resurrected and you stand before Christ and he is, he is judge over all. It'll be more bearable for those in Sodom than for that city that rejects Christ. We understand why Jesus would pick Sodom. He's making a point about the severity and the seriousness of refusing Christ. Sodom was a despicable city. You don't, you don't need to have read the Bible through 50 times in your lifetime to hear the word Sodom and make the connection. That was an ungodly and a wicked city that was consumed by immorality. And God burned up the city. He consumed it in a moment in response to their sin. And you know what? That judgment was great. It was, it was not... Well, it was big. It was huge. It was great in that sense. And the judgment awaiting them is greater. But their judgment that awaits them for their immorality and their debauchery that resulted in instantaneous judgment on this earth, the judgment that awaits them is greater. But for the city that heard the message of the kingdom and rejects Christ, they incur an even stricter judgment. To reject the kingdom of God is the most heinous of sins. It is worse than the debauchery of Sodom. And so Jesus makes the same point with two, infamous, two other infamous cities, Tyre and Sidon, there in verses 13 through 14. Jesus pronounces woes upon Chorazin and Bethsaida for their rejection of Christ and his kingly rule. When you see that word woe in the Bible, you'll find it on the lips of Christ. You'll find it on the lips of the prophets in the Old Testament. It is a threat of judgment. It is a warning that if not heeded, will result in judgment falling. Though many would scoff at this, Jesus is saying to these cities, you are less discerning and you are less receptive to the Lord than Tyre and Sidon. Less discerning and less receptive to the Lord than those two infamous cities. Tyre and Sidon are continually excoriated in the Old Testament. They are examples of wickedness and arrogance. If you want to jot down Ezekiel chapters 26 through 28, it's three chapters of just listing the failures and wickedness and sin and materialism of Tyre and Sidon. But the, the judgment is stricter for those who heard of the kingdom and rejected it. Jesus says that if Tyre and Sidon had seen the miracles that, that you have seen, they would have repented like the Ninevites when Jonah went and preached to them. 
They would have put on their sackcloth and they would have thrown ashes on themselves as, as a physical outward symbol that they are repenting before the Lord and that they are grieving their sin. If Tyre and Sidon had seen what you saw, that's how they would have responded. But not you, Chorazin, not you, Bethsaida. Therefore, at the judgment, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon. Now listen, that is, that is not to say that Tyre and Sidon will not bear much judgment. The people living in those cities who acted on their wickedness and their debauchery. It's not to say that their judgment won't be great. Their judgment will be great. They will be judged according to what they did. Sin is the basis of judgment. We saw that in, in Revelation 20. They're judged on what they have done. Since God has revealed himself clearly in creation, in conscience, in his word, and in Christ, ignorance is no excuse. Even Tyre and Sidon, who didn't have the same miracles as, as Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they didn't have the same level of revelation, but they're responsible and they will be judged. But those who had greater revelation will be judged more Harshly. Capernaum, too, will face the fierce wrath of God. Look there in verse 15. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. Jesus is often found in Capernaum doing miracles there. He cast out a demon in Luke chapter 4. He healed the centurion servant in Luke chapter 7. If you were to go to the other gospels, you would find him there doing many miracles. But they pridefully assume that they will be elevated to their destination, which is heaven. I think Jesus is alluding back to the king of Babylon in Isaiah 14. Well, Look at that next week. They pridefully assume that their destination is to, to elevate themselves to heaven. The, the king in Babylon boasted that he will be elevated up to heaven. He will make himself like the most high God. You think that's where you're headed, Capernaum? You will not ascend to heaven. They will be brought down to Hades. Hades is that place of torment for the unrighteous as they await the Revelation 20 judgment, a place of torment while they await the judgment of God where they will be cast into eternal fire, the second death. What a warning this is. What a warning this is for those of us who hear the proclamation of the gospel week in and week out. Don't rely on any sort of hope of heaven that, that doesn't, Come with faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. No man comes to God except through Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said. No man comes unto the Father except through me. We must renounce any sense of righteousness, any sense of pride or arrogance before God, and fall before him understanding that my only hope is in Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. Where he bore sin on the cross for those who would turn to him and trust in him. That he paid the penalty for sin and there's nothing, there's nothing that I can do to earn this righteousness. There's no hope outside of that message. 
And the message is urgent. Turn to Christ. Turn to him. You might be wondering, why such a severe judgment for not hearing from these messengers? Aren't these people simply rejecting some preacher that comes to town? Aren't these followers of Jesus who become the messengers, aren't they just sinful and frail people? Aren't they just sort of delivering their own message? Isn't this sort of a message that came from them? Well, no, it's, it's obviously not. And so in the last verse here, Jesus turns his attention to the disciples in verse 16. The one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Lastly, point number four, we see the authority of the mission. Why such a severe judgment? Why such difficult and hard words from our Lord Jesus Christ? Because these messengers are sent out, not with their own message. They're sent out as as representatives of Christ. They don't proclaim themselves. They proclaim Christ and his kingdom that has come. And so to hear their message is to hear the words of Jesus. And to reject their message is to reject the message of Jesus. And then Jesus goes even one step further. And to reject Jesus who is the Son of God, though he is distinct, he's a distinct person within the Trinity, is is said to be one with the Father. So much so that to have seen Jesus is to have seen the Father. And so Jesus says, to reject me is to reject the Father. If, If they reject the message, they've rejected me, and if they reject me, they've rejected the Father. This is the reason. That the word is so hard here. That it's such a severe warning. Jesus isn't just another spiritual guru. He isn't a moral example only. He isn't just a Jewish rabbi or a good moral person. He is God in the flesh. Come to defeat sin and all of its dreadful consequences. He's been sent by the Father for this task. Determined from eternity past past to crush sin, to crush Satan, to crush death. And as the second person of the Trinity who has been sent by the Father to reject the Son is to reject the Father. That's the reason for the severity. One quick application for us this morning. There can be no faithful preaching of the gospel without the warning of impending judgment and the great severity of bearing the weight of sin for ourselves. The good news is good news because it delivers us from the judgment that is to come. The only means, the only means of escaping that day of judgment, that eternal wrath, that second death, is to hear Christ, to hear the message, and to hear Christ, and therefore to hear the Father. That Jesus has taken upon himself the full punishment of sin. He bore the wrath of the Father. He faced the rejection so that you might be reconciled to God. Not on the basis of your own goodness, your own good works, your own righteousness, but on the basis of faith in the work of Jesus Christ done for you 
at the cross. And as a church, for those of us who have come to know Christ, as a church, we seek to continue in this proclamation of the gospel. The Son of God, the King of kings, He has come into this world. And we remind ourselves that our authority does not rest in ourselves, but it is in God the Father, His Son, Jesus Christ, and the Word of God has been given to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, and has been passed down to us by faithful men who are com commissioned by Christ, the apostles, to record, and, and associates of the apostles, to record this word for us. This is our authority. How humbling, then, that one of the ways God accomplishes His will in this world is through the prayers of saints like us in Southern Hills Bible Church. May we be found faithful in praying, faithful in proclaiming the severity of the judgment and highlighting the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. May we be found faithful in lifting up our missionaries in prayer. That's one, one reason we do that week in and week out, is to model what it looks like to pray for our missionaries. May we be found faithful when we go to work this week, that we have an eye towards what our, what our giving even goes to. It goes in part to be able to support missionaries that can spread the gospel. May we be enthusiasts, eager to be used by the Lord to accomplish His will in this world. I want to read verse 2 as we close. And He said to them, The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you that your goodwill and your good plan involves your people. Lord, we do pray and we beseech you that you would raise up laborers. Would you even raise up laborers in this body? We understand that we are privileged beyond what we deserve to have sent out our own missionary, Lord, but we, we ask that we could do that again and again and again, that we would send out faithful people who can proclaim the gospel of Christ. Would you send laborers as you bring in your harvest through your good and sovereign plan? In Jesus' name, amen.